we'll get started now. Thank you all very much indeed for joining us this morning for our latest talk in the Experimental Psychology, Our Mental Wellness series. We're really delighted to be joined by a number of our colleagues from the Department of Psychiatry today to talk about managing depression and low mood. And before we just get started, I should just introduce myself. My name's Cathy Creswell. And um, just to let you know, we um, this is part of a series and you will be able to find previous sessions on managing stress and anxiety and also overcoming sleep difficulties on our YouTube channel. So please do have a look at those. And we've got another session coming up in January on the 28th of January um, on overcoming mistrust and paranoia. So please do join us for that too. I um, also just wanted to highlight that um, we'll be sharing some resources and also be asking for your feedback, um, which will come to you in an email tomorrow. So it'd be wonderful to have your responses to that. Um, but without further ado, I'd like to introduce you now to Professor Willem Kuyken. And Willem is the Sir John Ritblatt Family Foundation Professor of Mindfulness and Psychological Science. He's a principal investigator in the University of Oxford Mindfulness Research Centre and director of the University of Oxford Mindfulness Centre, as well as being a fellow of Kellogg College. So we're absolutely delighted to have him here today talking to us about managing depression and low mood. Thanks very much, Willem. Thank you, Cathy, and it's an absolute privilege to have a chance to speak as part of this fantastic series on mental wellness for university staff and beyond, um, and um, to have a chance to speak to you all about something which is clearly very much on people's mind of how to manage one's mood and possibly depression in the midst of this um, pandemic. So I'm just going to share some slides. I'd like to um, start by um, kind of, in a way, just a bit of a thought experiment. If you imagine that um, my title today was not managing depression and low mood, but instead was managing heart health, what would come next would feel, I think, probably quite straightforward. All the things I put up next would be perhaps not surprising at all. Seven steps to a healthier heart, diet, maintaining one's weight, managing cholesterol. Moreover, there wouldn't be much stigma associated with this. So here's my hope, if you like, that for the next five, 10, um, 50 years, the work that we do in experimental psychology and psychiatry here at the University of Oxford will move us to the same place with mental health, that managing mental health will have that same clarity, but also won't have the same stigma that it currently does. So what I'd like to do in the next, um, 20 minutes or so that I have is to um, strike a, a, a realistic balance between um, optimism and hope and also the reality of what depression is and just start by saying what depression is and then go on to talk about the treatments that are available, but then also what we can all do individually to manage our mental health and um, well-being. So what is depression? We sent round a an illustration recently from a from a recent illustrated book by Matthew Johnson called I Had a Black Dog. The first thing to say <clears throat> is what depression isn't. It isn't sadness and it isn't grief. It also isn't the kind of um, feelings that we have around being um, cooped up in the midst of this pandemic. These are just normal human emotions, normal human reactions. Yes, yeah, sure, depression might be on a dimension, but it is a qualitatively different phenomenon. 
it's captured beautifully, I think, in this slide. Um, it has this sense of these two cardinal symptoms, a sense of unrelenting low mood, usually pretty well every day, all of the day for about two weeks, or just a sense of loss of pleasure. Then it has other symptoms, which this slide speak to, early morning waking, negative thinking, low self-worth, um, lack of energy, irritability, and in extreme forms, suicidal thinking and suicidality. It tends to have a life course, typically. Onset is late adolescence, early adulthood. Um, people who've had a single episode of depression um, have a 50% chance of having a second. And the more episodes people have, the more it's likely to have a recurring course. And I say that not to sort of strike a pessimistic note, but rather to, to strike the note that at that point, it becomes more like living with diabetes or a more long-term condition. Women are more likely to suffer from depression than men. And depression is something that is associated with deprivation, low socioeconomic status. The pressures of those kind of um, social conditions affect people and they affect people in the long term. So what I'd like to do now is um, uh, just put a poll up for you all to have a look at. And the poll is a very simple yes, no question. Um, do you know anyone in your immediate circle of family or friends who have suffered from depression? Or have you yourself suffered from depression? So just look at that. Isn't that extraordinary? I don't know if you can see the same screen as I can. 96, 97%. All of you are in very incredibly good company. It's a common condition. 250 million people around the world right now are suffering from depression. If you look at the world's population, at some point in their life, one billion people will suffer from depression. Winston Churchill, Stormzy, Marilyn Monroe, Lady Gaga, Hugh Laurie, Dolly Parton. Many, many people have suffered from this condition. It's a common condition. What does the evidence say about what works? If you want to have a look at the evidence and look at the treatments that are available, they, um, in the UK, the National Institute for Health and, um, and Care Excellence, NICE, produces um, a, a synthesis of the evidence, widely available. The web link is up here. I had the privilege of serving on the last NICE light guideline group. And I think broadly speaking, one could talk about biological, psychological, and social treatments. Um, we have some world-leading experts um, on the panel today who can speak to um, antidepressants in the biological category. So I'm not going to um, say too much about that just now. But in the psychological area, we have um, a whole range of treatments that we know work. Cognitive behavioral treatment, behavioral activation, interpersonal therapy. Actually, one of the things that's interesting about depression is many different treatments seem to work about the same. But we've also here in Oxford developed um, treatments that are um, focused on helping people in the long term stay well, in particular mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. These are all trials and projects that I've been um, involved with over the last 10 or so years. All of these are recommended either in the last um, NICE guideline or the forthcoming NICE guideline. These are, on the optimistic note, treatments that we know that work. There are also treatments that you all can access, and I'll say more about that in just a moment. How can we all 
collectively manage our mood, depression, and well-being. I love this image. It's a sort of live course of depression and well-being, if you like. And one of the things I like about this image is that it has this sense of a person traveling through their life and encountering different areas. So you could call this maybe perhaps a period of low mood, this perhaps a period of um, a more enduring um, difficulty, this a period perhaps of depression. This is a period of just maybe a bit like the pandemic, just a pretty, I don't know, grotty time. You can see the weather clouds and it has an indeterminate cause. But what's I think lovely about this image is the way the person um, traverses each of these challenges in their life is different. And I think that's the challenge for all of us too, is to figure out the puzzle of what supports our mood, what helps us when we become depressed or the people that we love become depressed and what supports our well-being. And one of the things I'd like to say, I guess on the, on the kind of optimistic note here, is I actually don't think it's rocket science. I think actually in the same way as we now know a lot about um, heart disease in the next five, 10, um, uh, 20 years, we will have the same currency about the sorts of things that support our mood, depression, and well-being. Broadly speaking, I think one can separate them out into biological, psychological, and social approaches. And the other thing to say is I think the sort of things that we do when we're going through um, low mood are different to the things that we go we might do when we go through a depression, are different to the things that we might do in the midst of something like this pandemic. And just before I get into this, I wanna have one major caveat. And the caveat is this, that sometimes people are encountering things in their lives which are just very difficult things and those things need being addressed, need to be addressed. Somebody, for example, who is caught in an abusive relationship, somebody who's at work and is in a toxic work environment and is burnt out, somebody who is in the midst of um, uh, conflict at home, somebody who's living with very, very um, pervasive and difficult um, health conditions. Those things, in those cases, clearly need to be addressed and addressed first. That being said, I think there are things that one can do to look after ourselves, to work with low mood, and to look, work with depression. And the sort of levels that I'm, I'm connoting on this slide here are about things to do when we're well, things to do when perhaps we're encountering low mood, and things to do when we're perhaps um, actually depressed. When we're well, rest, we know, is really important. Sometimes the kind of um, the busyness and the franticness of life means that we lose the balance and we forget to rest. There's a beautiful recent book by Claudia Hammond, which is called Rest and the many different ways in which um, uh, people choose to rest. Sleep is absolutely vital to mental health in a way that we're only beginning to really fully understand. And I highly re recommend um, the talk on YouTube from this series um, by um, Colin Espy and others. Diet and eating well is important. And the judicious use of alcohol and other drugs as well, which can be depressants, um, but people sometimes use to self-medicate. Low mood response to activity and exercise. Antidepressants are also something that we know works and works to keep people well in the long term. And when people get more severely depressed, medication review and hospitalization may be indicated. Now, of course, the area that I know best as a psychologist is the psychological area. And here, I think, is um, where, in a sense, as I said before, it really isn't rocket science. 
a lifelong question that we can all ask ourselves is what is meaningful? What's rewarding? What do I value in my life? And asking ourselves that question and answering it by doing more of the things that make us feel better and fewer of the things that make us feel worse. It's not rocket science. And to keep that under review, appreciation, gratitude um, um, journals people describe as being tremendously helpful. I think it's partly because it helps people signal what actually gives value to their life, what gives pleasure to their life. Learning new skills, mindfulness, these are all things that we know can support mental health and well-being. What about when we hit a period of low mood and depression? Ask for help. Here in um, Oxford and the surrounding areas, um, through the incredible work of David Clark and Richard Layard and many others around the country, evidence-based treatments are readily available. You can actually self-refer here in Oxford to the IAP service, the Improving Access to Psychological Therapy service. It's called Talking Space. You fill in a form and you can get access to evidence-based treatments. A tremendous piece of work to make mental health accessible in the UK. If suicidal, the Samaritans or NHS emergency services are always available. And more and more people are looking at kind of social um, um, ways of working, gardens, parks, getting out in nature, connecting with others, talking and listening, being with people that we know give us joy, have our back, make us feel better about ourselves. So as I say, it's a lifelong puzzle. It's a way of actually figuring out for ourselves what supports our mood, what we can do when we become depressed and what actually supports our well-being in the long term. So I have a good friend who I um, uh, WhatsApped yesterday and I said, and I know she suffers um, from seasonal affective disorder and I asked her what she does. And she sent me this image on WhatsApp. My solution to low mood, she said, <laughs> cinnamon buns. Based partly on the following exchange with her teenage daughter. Mum, you should make these more often. Me, yes, they taste nice. But then we'd be as big as houses, her teenage daughter. Yes, but we'd be happy houses. So there's my considered answer and you're welcome. So I'm not trying to be trite here um, because what's um, interesting about this example is the very cruel thing about depression is it destroys our motivation and it makes us feel like this might actually go on forever, forever. And we are actually um, the only one who's suffering from this. That actually keeping a sense of doing the right thing and being patient and this too shall pass is really important. So the making of these cinnamon buns, even when one feels like not doing it, I think is a kind of part of what this person was trying to communicate. So I want to just finish again with Matthew Johnston and I had a black dog and Matthew Johnston is somebody who suffered from um, recurrent depression. And you can see in this second slide towards the end of his book, his illustrated book, He's sitting and he's doing a whole range of things. So he describes a whole range of different things that he does at, at different times. But what I think is important about this slide is that the black dog is still there in the window. I think with recurrent depression, this sort of propensity to low mood and maybe some of the negative thinking never quite fully goes away, but he's found a way of living with it that is um, um, tolerable, but actually still has meaning and well-being in his life. So um, just by way of conclusion, these are some <clears throat> um, resources that I would highly recommend. These are the book um, that has been sent around um, on email to all the delegates. 
Um, then there is also Matthew Johnston's partner, Ainsley Johnston, who's um, quite a few of the people I know who um, are interested in this talk are living with somebody who suffers from depression. She provides her perspective on how to support somebody with depression in living with a black dog. And then this NHS website and the web link just here has some fantastic um, resources. So I'm gonna hand over to um, the panelists now and just finish my talk. But just before doing that, I just want to thank um, the people who support my work, which is um, the Wellcome Trust, um, the Oxford Mindfulness uh, Centre and the Sir John Riplap Family Foundation. Thank you. Great, thank you very much indeed, Willem. And um, I know that we've got lots of um, questions that will allow us to discuss some of those um, themes that you've raised in more detail as well. So we look forward to further discussion with you shortly. Um, I just wanted to also say before we move on, huge thanks to you, Willem, for sharing so many useful resources. Um, some of those have already gone out to delegates and, other, and others will be sent out tomorrow in an email, as I mentioned. So yeah, huge thanks for sharing those. I'm sure they'll be really appreciated. Um, I'd now like to introduce the other two members of our panel. Uh, so we're delighted to be joined by Professor Kath Harmer, who is a Professor of Cognitive Neuroscience in the Department of Psychiatry here in Oxford. Kath is Director of the um, Psychopharmacology and Emotional Research Lab, Pearl, and is also a Research Fellow at Corpus Christi College. And I'd also like to introduce you to Professor Andrea Cipriani, who's a professor of psychiatry in the Department of Psychiatry. He's an NHR research professor and is also director of the clinical research facility at the Warmford Hospital, associate director for R&D for Oxford Health NHS Foundation, Foundation Trust and also an honorary consultant psychiatrist in Oxford Health NHS Foundation Trust. So I'm sure you've, you'll agree we've got a really fantastic panel to speak to you today. Um, and um, so what I'd like to do is just start by asking a question which picks up on um, some of the things that Willem's already mentioned. Um, so, and this really reflects a question that many people raise, particularly in the current time, which as Willem said, you know, is challenging and unusual and presents many difficulties for many people. Um, and this is really um, that everyone of course feels low from time to time. And so how do we discriminate low mood from a clinical problem? And I. I think people did raise this in relation to, for example, the current situation of the pandemic, but also following bereavement or in the context of physical health problems that cause discomfort and pain. So how do we how do we know uh, when we should be concerned and when we should consider this to be a problem? So, Andrea, if I could go to you first. Uh, sure. Um, yes, this is a, a key uh, point to address, and it's a very frequently asked question uh, from, from patients, but also for carers, because uh, it's crucial to be able to discriminate something that is called low mood. And as Willem said, is part of our uh, life, normal life, from something which is a clinical problem. Uh, in clinical settings, we tend to consider two important things, if I have to summarize. One is, um, the low mood in itself is not a problem, is how consistently it is low. Uh, Willem mentioned the duration of symptoms over a longer period of time, weeks, and also it's not reactive to uh, normal things that usually cheer up people or may, or we consider pleasurable things and, and people don't get pleasure from this uh, thing. So the duration of symptoms, not just the intensity, but it's crucial the duration, and the second thing we consider to discriminate when is a clinical problem 
is the impact on uh, personal life, uh, the working uh, life, and also whether people around the person notice that there has been a change. So these are usually the key pillars to distinguish what, uh, what is normal, low mood, or as a normal reaction within the normal range to something which is clinical problem and deserve more attention. Great, thank you very much. Willem, did you want to add anything on that point? No, I don't think so. Okay, great. Thank you. So there was uh, there were also a lot of questions about what people can do themselves, particularly thinking about before we get to a point where we feel we need professional help, what can we do to offset low mood? So Kath, it'd be great to hear your thoughts about that. Yeah, no, I think this is a great question and I agree with the some of the suggestions that Willem gave in his um, talk. I think there's lots of things that we can all do to try and offset low mood before seeking outside help. Perhaps the most important uh, thing, although it sounds a bit trite, is just to get to know yourself and try and find out what works for you. There's a huge amount of, of good advice out there and we know that some things are very helpful, such as um, increasing levels of exercise, having a good daily and sleep rhythm, eating well, spending time with others. Uh, and all of these things can be very helpful um, but they will work better for different people and it can sometimes seem a bit overwhelming if you see this long list of things that that you should try if you try to do them all at once especially if you're um, feeling a bit low so I think taking small steps and thinking about what's most important to you is a, a good start uh, we did a recent study online during the first lockdown and we found that there were a couple of things that really stood out across uh, a group as, as being useful and being related to better mood and uh, lower risk of subsequent depression. Um, it, uh, and uh, there were two, two main things. One of them was spending time outside each day, which is very important. Um, and this, I think, is maybe particularly important now when we naturally spend a bit less time outside uh, during lockdown. And also having a high level of what's called behavioural activation. Um, and Willem touched on some of these um, in his uh, talk. It refers to a number of interlinked things. It's, it's having a good structure in your day, seeking out and doing things which you find enjoyable. Try not to put off things that you find um, unpleasant, but you have to do. Um, so, and they can hang over you. So getting those out of the way. I also think it's really important to be kind to yourself. And sometimes we can be our own worst uh, critic. Um, Certainly, I would never speak to other people or think about other people the way I would break myself sometimes. And I think it's important to kind of try and tune in uh, to that, to recognise that you're doing it and then try and overcome that, that tendency by giving yourself some praise and uh, reward. And the more you do it, uh, the, the more habitual it becomes and the, the easier, easier it um, becomes. And so I think it's very important just to start with small steps of the things that seem most valuable or meaningful to you and go from there remembering that we're all individuals and some of this will be relevant to different people in different ways and we have to find our own um, path uh, to things which can help us offset these difficult times when they happen in our own life. Great thank you very much and you mentioned sleep there so just to take the opportunity again just to mention that uh, in on our YouTube channel you'll find the last um, session that we did which was on overcoming difficulties with sleep so um, please do take a look at that. Um, Willem, would you like to add anything further on that point? No, really just to echo um, <clears throat> Cathy's um, invitation to, to make this a sort of kind self-exploration. You know, well, instead of like hunting out all of this expert advice, actually just really 
treating ourselves as the expert. What do we know <laughs> in a given moment, in a given day, in a given way, uh, week makes us feel a sense of aliveness, a sense of vitality and a sense of um, engagement with others and trusting ourselves in that. I think it's a kind of self-exploration, which I think is really powerful and really interesting. Um, so yeah, just to echo, I think what, 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 what Kath said, Kath said, and I think some of these things like sleep, some people will say, yeah, I get that about sleep, but I don't know how to work with that. There are evidence-based programs. I mean, Colin's uh, work with Sleepio is a, a fantastic resource, but it takes the effort <laughs> to go through the program of the sort of diagnosis, if you like, of why, why am I having sleep problems? And then to, to kind of work through uh, the kind of approach to that. So some of these things can feel as, 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 as Catherine said, like, a, a sort of insurmountable mountain, but we sort of break them down into small steps. Um, what does it mean to exercise? Well, it might just mean just taking a 15 minute walk each day. Uh, what does it mean to sleep differently? Well, it might mean just leaving our phone outside our bedroom. These are just small but important steps. Thanks very much. We had a lot of questions about antidepressant medication. Some people asked how long they might expect to be on them, what sort of side effects to expect, and also how likely they are to work for any any individual. Um, Kath, can I go to you first with that one? Yeah, sure. Again, I would say this relies very much on the individual and there are lots of things which need to be taken into account when making a decision about whether to, to take an antidepressant drug treatment. As a general rule of thumb, if it's your first experience of depression, most people will take antidepressants for around six months or so, although it may vary a little bit between people. The side effects can also vary quite a bit. Um, so in our research studies where we look at different antidepressants, actually most people can't tell if they're taking the antidepressant or um, the placebo, but, uh, but others will experience side effects. There, there's initial side effects, often like nausea or headaches, and this uh, is usually just for the first few days of, of treatment and it gets better. And I think it's important to recognise that anxiety can also get a little bit worse in the first few days uh, or week. Uh, but again, this gets better over time and in general um, is also usually helped by antidepressants. Perhaps the side effects, which, which is the most problematic, are the sexual side effects. Uh, again, not affecting everyone, but of course can be very distressing. So things like decreased libido or interest in sex. But again, there are differences between different people and also probably between different antidepressants as well. The third part is how likely they are to work. So in our research studies where we look at antidepressants often in, in GP clinics or in primary care, actually the response is pretty good. Around 60 or 70% of, of people feel quite a bit better. If we turn to larger data sets across more diverse populations, um, one of the largest studies of this kind suggests that around 50% of people who uh, go on to treatment with an SSRI type of antidepressant will do quite well. And of those who don't respond to that, if they try a second one, half of those again will uh, respond. So antidepressants are effective. They are a, a, a good um, treatment option, but they certainly don't work for everybody. And unfortunately, we don't have a good way of predicting who's most likely to uh, get benefit from this in advance. And this is something which is very important for research to focus on, and it's actually a good link to our next uh, panellist, Andrea, whose work uh, focuses very much on, on this question. Absolutely. Yes, Andrea, can I go to you now? 
No, I, I totally agree with what Kath uh, just said. It, it's crucial uh, that the big challenge for, for us now is to catch up with what medicine is doing in other fields. So ideally to be able to personalize treatment uh, based on the clinical presentation on, on people's need, but also people's preferences. And this is a, something I'd like to spend a few words uh, on because the big problem we have in, in psychiatry and if you want in medicine in general, is that we tend to be, um, everything tends to be clinician led while it should be person centered. And if we move to this paternalistic paradigm to something which is more shared decision making process, I think this will help tackling um, one of the most important things that uh, William mentioned at the beginning, which is also stigma towards uh, mental health and especially towards antidepressants because sometimes people think well I should be able to do it myself without any help but actually especially for uh, people with severe symptoms uh, antidepressants uh, can really help in the majority of cases and they should also be considered in, in combination with other treatments including psychological treatments. Um, in terms of um, what side effects to expect, uh, if we have this shared decision-making process and paradigm, I think it's crucial also to incorporate what people think about these specific adverse events, because what uh, is upsetting for me may be less relevant for somebody else. Um, the good thing is that when we present this information to, to patients and carers, we know that, for instance, some adverse events like the gastrointestinal adverse events, nausea, diarrhea, constipation, for the most commonly prescribed antidepressant called SSRI, the serotoninergic ones, they tend to disappear over a few days, a few weeks. Others, uh, the ones that Kath mentioned, the sexual side effects, they tend to stay for longer. So this is also something to be factoring when we uh, inform people about the side effect profile. And also, um, we, knew, we should be aware, as Kath said, that not all antidepressants are the same, so the side effect profile may, may differ. Uh, the last thing about how long uh, they, uh, the people might expect to be on antidepressants, uh, yes, we, we have pretty strong data that um, if you continue taking the antidepressants once the symptoms are over, you reduce more or less by 50% the chance to get a relapse. And as Kath said, it is a, a, an individual decision because we have people who may benefit for prolonged treatment and people who actually uh, don't have any added uh, value from this continuation treatment. So it's very important to have an open discussion. And what I'm trying to push is to have a discussion based on some numbers so people can quantify the expected benefit and have an informed decision. Great, thank you very much. And Willem's just got a follow-up um, question for you both. Um, so just a follow-up to Kath and Andrea, which is uh, I, th I think something that's around for a lot of people who are on long-term antidepressants, um, are sort of the, the, the questions and the issues they have about coming off their antidepressants um, are to do with things like tapering and discontinuation and maybe discontinuation syndromes as well. Yeah, it, the, the, how to taper off the medication is, uh, is another thing uh, very important to consider to avoid withdrawal symptoms. And this uh, varies a lot because we have in the general population 
people that we call fast metabolizer. So they usually need uh, higher doses of drugs because they eliminate the drug very fast. And this also when you taper off and stop the medication, it has to be very gradual. Otherwise you have a big jump uh, in terms of levels of uh, drugs in the body. Or on the other hand, we have the slow metabolizers and then the tapering off is much, much easier. Thank you. Kathy, do you want to add anything? No, I mean, I, I agree. I think there's been increasing focus on um, the withdrawal effects of uh, or coming off antidepressants. And I agree, it's a very important area, um, uh, both for kind of clinical questions about how to come off it, but also what, what's happening um, on, under the hood, what, what, what kinds of things uh, contribute to those kinds of withdrawal experiences. And if we knew that, then it might be possible to, to support or target those um, same processes uh, as well. So I think we are all aware of, of the growing importance of, of focusing on that stage. We need to know more what, what's underlying it and also how we can predict who's going to find it most difficult to come off antidepressants. And also does that place them at higher risk of, of relapse as well? So I think um, there, there are uh, research questions around that that um, they're very much ongoing. Thank you very much. So we had a lot of questions about how best to support other people who are struggling with low mood or depression. So we'd be really keen to hear what advice you would give. Um, so Andrea, can I go to you first of all? Sure, I, I'd like to go back to, to two things that Willem said in his presentation. Um, so how best to support people who are struggling with low mood and depression or depression. Uh, we all have low mood and we all can suffer from depression. So the first thing is not to be afraid of uh, having a discussion and, and mention this because um, it can happen. Uh, so it's important for people who are suffering with low symptoms and low mood to be aware and have some feedback about this and also go uh, and have a word with the GP or other uh, specialists. Because I think one of our roles as medics in the field is also to give feedback to patients and say, well, actually, you're not suffering from depression. It's just low mood. So it's not automatic every time we see a patient to or a person to assume it's a patient and prescribe medication. On the contrary, I spend a lot of time uh, revising uh, people and, and, and stopping the medication or not prescribe anything, of course. The other thing is about stigma. So sometimes having, a, or actually often, having a diagnosis helps because diagnosis is not a label to have on the person. On the contrary, is a way for us to define a group of symptoms and have a treatment which is likely to be effective for this person. So it actually helps the process and be able to see whether we are above the threshold of something clinically significant or below is crucial also for treatment purposes. Great. Thank you very much. And Willem, can I get you on that question too? The only thing I think I would add um, is that um, two things. One is it takes a lot of patience because we've heard about the course of depression sometimes being weeks and months. So it's not something that you can um, hurry or cajole someone through. So as a carer, it requires a lot of patience. And I think the thing I'd say then for people who are living with someone with depression is it's really important to take care of yourself. 
because actually um, to be able to support someone with depression, you yourself need to be in good shape. So if you have a teenager or a partner or a parent who is suffering from depression, maybe one of the best things you can do to support that person is to look after yourself so that you yourself are actually in good shape to be there for them and can show that sense of patience and support um, through their depression. Um, but again, I'd just point you to the, the, the book, um, Living with Black Dog. It's just, a, a, I think, a very um, vibrant example of her experience of living with someone with depression. And if I could just ask a follow-up question relating to this, I mean, um, so as you all know, I work with um, children and young people, and one of the things that often comes up as a major symptom for low mood and depression um, in adolescence is high levels of irritability, and I know that's not unique to adolescence, but it does present some challenges in identifying depression, distinguishing it from normal experiences, and, you know, sometimes parents do reflect that sometimes they thought um, this was just adolescence, um, and you know, later maybe it becomes clearer that um, that the young person is struggling with depression. Um, and it, but irritability is potentially a particularly challenging thing for those living with people to to be able to address. Because whilst we might like to have a nice conversation about the issues, maybe that's not going to go down quite so well if people are really struggling with irritability. So I was really keen to hear your thoughts on that and any advice that you would give. I don't know if anyone has a particular view. Kathy, I'd like to I'd like to hear your view, but I guess what I'd say is um, I think this is where that example of looking after yourself is really important. And I think, you know, for me personally, mindfulness is actually very helpful because actually to be able to stay grounded and to be able to have some perspective when when someone or a, or, or, or a child or an adolescent is irritable, it helps us to realize that this is not about me so that the irritability might be directed at me, but this is not about me. This is about them. And how can I stay steady and support them? But Kathy, I, I know you're being very even handed as the chair, but actually, I think probably the best person to, to answer this question would be you. <laughs> uh, well, actually, I think I mean, I think I'd very much reiterate what you just said. I, I think I think the thing that we see happening is that when, you know, if young people are struggling with irritability, it's very easy for that then to you know lead to conflict um, because it's frustrating for parents. Um, it feels disrespectful, it feels um, like they're being challenged and so parents may respond, you know, by fighting back and then obviously then the young person feels they're being attacked, being targeted and you get caught in a vicious cycle that sort of escalates the conflict and leaves everybody feeling pretty rubbish. So I think exactly what you've, you've said is that sort of trying to maintain that patient um, ability to stand back from it a bit, not take it personally, uh, but instead just to be more curious um, and empathic um, and gentle in, in responses, but you know, recognize it's very difficult to do. Thank you. So, um, Willem, you've already um, touched on the, the last question that we were going to get to, um, but I don't know if you've got anything else you want to say about it. And, and that was really about exactly this, that where people are looking after a loved one or, a, or someone who's close to them who has depression, how can people also best look after themselves? So um, you've, you've commented on that. So I'll go to Kath first and then I'll come back and see if you've got anything else that you want to add. But Kath, any, any thoughts on that? No, I, I mean, I agree with Willem. I think it, it's really important to look after yourself as well. I think it's, it's like they say on the safety briefing on the aeroplane, uh, put your own oxygen mask on first. And 
this is really hard to do, uh, but it's really important to, to do it. Um, if you don't look after yourself, then it becomes very difficult to look after anyone else as well. And so it's really important to invest in yourself. And when, uh, when I heard this question, I was thinking um, of a time in my own life when perhaps I didn't follow this advice very well, um, when I had young um, twins to look after and uh, a busy job and my sister was uh, just diagnosed with cancer and I took um, the opposite advice to all of this and I didn't uh, invest any time in myself and all these things sort of piled up and became very difficult. Um, so I think, I think my, my advice with the benefit of hindsight is to set aside some time to look after yourself, doing some nice things if you, if you can, some essential things, uh, some trivial uh, things, but things that would otherwise mount up and come back. And also to, to try and seek the support and advice of people around you, um, even if it means telling them what they can do to help you. And I think we've all been in that situation on the other side of this barrier where we can see that somebody's having a very difficult time, but we don't really know what to do to help. And often then we don't really do anything. And I think most people are very happy to, to step in and help and to do some practical things if you, if you need it, if you can tell them what you need and what would be helpful. And I think that this is a it, it is really useful to try and gather some more social support around you at those very difficult times because it can be quite easy to become quite isolated just focusing on looking after somebody else without the support networks that you'd normally rely on and um, with things sort of mounting up and you become in a sort of smaller and smaller uh, space to actually deal with anything yourself. So. I, I think it, it, is, it is hard to do in the situation where you're busy looking after somebody else. But I think if you can just set aside a little bit of time for yourself every day to do those kinds of things, I, I think it is, it is really important. Great. Thank you very much. Um, Willem, Andrea, is there any final things you'd like to add on that point before we finish? I would like to come in, if I may. And I, I think um, just reflect on the poll that we did at the beginning, 95% of the people on this call have either suffered from depression themselves or um, know somebody who has in their immediate circle. So this is a very live issue. And I'm minded of the, um, the Wordsworth, um, his words, a deep distress hath humanized my soul. Um, and what he was describing was uh, an experience of um, depression that actually had been somehow transformative for him. And many of the people I've described, I, I don't want to in any sense romanticize depression. It's not a romantic disorder. Um, but actually standing alongside someone uh, through depression, the beginning of it, depression, the aftermath of it, can be actually something, and I've experienced this myself in my own life, as Kath has described, can actually deepen a friendship, it can deepen a relationship, it can deepen a marriage. Yes, it feels difficult, but that teenager, um, uh, Kathy, that you described, if you can be there for them through the irritability and stand steady, you might find later that day when you're on a long car ride with them they're disclosing something very personal to you and i think that actually it's more than just can we survive living with someone with depression can it actually be part of that relationship can it be something that actually enhances that relationship over the long the, the long haul because it's a part of life and i just want to go back to where i started if we were talking about heart disease we wouldn't have this kind of worry about it right we'd say this is just part of life this is part of the human condition and my hope is that the same will be will be true here this is what happens sometimes to people and if we can find a way of navigating our way through it it actually deepens and strengthens um, relationships sometimes 
Thank you. And I think that's a really nice place to finish. So I'd just like to um, thank again our um, three panellists today, Willem, Kath and Andrea, for a really fantastic session, which I hope will be useful for many people who are listening. Um, it's really wonderful of them to give up their time to take part, and we really do appreciate it very much. Um, I also want to say a huge thanks to Nicola, Kaya and Hallie who've done enormous amounts of work behind the scenes to make this series run as smoothly as possible and also just to do a final plug for our uh, YouTube channel where you can find the previous talks you'll also be able to find this one here and our next session which is on overcoming mistrust and paranoia on the 28th of January and please do look out for the email from us tomorrow where we'll be asking for some feedback but also sharing some more resources. So thank you ever so much for joining us and we hope that you'll be able to join us again soon. Thank you.